Hello, hello. Welcome back to another edition of the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We're talking to top performers in the worlds of adventure, culture, sports, tech. We're trying to understand the hurdles that they had to overcome, the, the tips and the tricks that made them better. Today, we got a real innovator. His name is Don Montague, and basically, he's been innovating in water sports since he was a competitive windsurfer in the early 80s he pushed windsurfing sail technology then moved into kite surfing helped grow that industry and uh, along the way met a couple of fellows by the names of larry and sergey as he puts it uh, those of us know them uh, those of us in the know know them as larry page and sergey brin the co-founders of google who looked at his technology and thought hey Maybe you can help save the planet with that. Maybe that's a viable alternative energy strategy. He started a company with them, a company he later left when it got, things got a little bit too corporate and uh, focused on his own designs, his own visions of uh, what was possible in the water. He invented something called a kite boat, which is like this uh, X-Fighter-looking J.J. Abrams Star Wars-style uh, trimaran that goes up on foils and is powered by a kite. And later on this summer, he's going to try and beat the record, uh, the speed record from uh, San Francisco to Hawaii on a sailboat. Uh, we talk a little bit about that. We talked to him about um, his youth growing up. Um, he was severely dyslexic and how that had a massive impact on you know, his skill set and what he was able to do in terms of problem solving. Every day he problem solves. It's a really, really fascinating conversation. Um, he's really an inspirational figure. And, and uh, I should also say that this is the first time we took the podcast on the road. I braved the uh, this TSA security detail of both LAX and San Francisco uh, and carried a massively heavy bag filled with mic stands and all sorts of equipment to bring you this podcast on the road. Made me think that maybe I could be, be doing this solo anyway. Who needs first name James, the engineer? Who needs T. Rizza, our producer? Ha, that was a joke mostly. All right, let's start the show. What I wanted to start, we're, we're not in your shop, I should say. We're, we're in, uh, in your home now. Yes. <laughs> you just spent uh, about an hour giving me a whirlwind tour of probably some of the more high-tech, futuristic pieces of watercraft I've seen, uh, in addition to all the amazing technology you have there. But we were talking when we came in about your decision to come here, as opposed to Maui, where you do spend a lot of time. But w right. what is it about, you know, this? in addition to the naval base, which affords you a lot of space, you know, what is it about this area? Yeah, so like in San Francisco, you have like-minded people that are moving very quickly within a broad range of skill set. Right. And so in Maui, you can attract people for a certain amount of time um, to come and stay there. But then, you know, the family kicks in and... You know, more likely, unless they have an incredible career, their lifespan in Maui is like three years. And so it's really difficult to build uh, a team to work on a really large-scale project um, in, the, in the islands. Yeah. Whereas here, you've got all the universities, you've got MIT, you've got Stanford, you've got everybody collectively coming from all over and even from Europe, for example, so... Makania, I was lucky I was able to draw from the very best in the world because the project was so amazing. Are you comfortable not being the smartest person in a room? Absolutely, because I'm you're only as good as your team. Right. So I'm only I'm I've survived 
like all these years because I built an amazing team always. Right. I always surrounded myself by much smarter people, much smarter mentors, much older people. Yeah. I always gravitated to to the the older guys and girls that would mentor me along the way. And this and it, was this This was even in Maui. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And even before then, I mean, oh, you grew, yeah. so you grew up in Vancouver. I right? grew up in West Van. Um, water sports paradise, I imagine. Yeah, lots of water sports, but you know, I was a, I was a hockey player um, and a skier first, and then in the summers we had a sailboat, and so we did a lot of touring around the Gulf Islands and Desolation Sound, and and so on. And so there was a lot of boating. We lived on the boat for a year, um, but I think the you know that that was all really interesting. But when I was like fifteen. My father was involved um, in a project in Alaska, um, developing really large freezing systems on really large boats to process fish really quickly. Okay. And so I would go up there in the summers. And that was like the first big travel, you know, like where you go somewhere really desolate, like takes five airplanes to get there and you're on a seaplane and you may not make it and there are storms and you're in a storm of 100 knots and the next day you go to the village and it's wiped out. And so that kind of thing sets you up for like where are you going to be in life? You know, those experiences at a young age of like and then gravitating to those extremes. Okay, I thrived when that wind was blowing. The more it blowed, I was on the roof, crawling on my belly, hanging onto the railing with my feet sticking straight out. Of course, my father and mother are like freaking out. What an idiot. And yeah, of course I was an idiot. But those, those are the kind of things that like start you on your path. What was it about the wind? You know, I mean, my first really experience was I, I remember I received this inflatable kite, if you can yeah. imagine. Like yeah. it was called a puffer kite. And you blew it up. And I was like uh, grade four and I was hanging onto this kite and I just got it and the wind got it and the line burnt into my hand because the force was so high and I had to let go and this kite flew away into the forest and I never found it and I looked for it forever and so that that was the first big you know experience with wind yeah you know in that sense and then you know funnily enough I was like 11 years old or 12 years old and I had my skateboard and it was windy I went into the garage. My father always had all the tools and everything. And I put a sail on my skateboard. And this was like before I had any inkling of what windsurfing was or, you know, any, anything to do with it. I was already... You were just thinking like, hey, can I, can I use this to power this? Exactly. And, you know, I was like the guy who always took apart the telephone and, you know, took everything apart that I could find. Yeah. But didn't really have the, a great background in... Uh, engineering or, you know, or anything, you know, obviously didn't go to university, barely made it through high school, you know? Right. So I think all those beginning years of being dyslexic and trying to find your way. And they didn't, I didn't know I was dyslexic until I was 40. So I was told the whole time that I was stupid and I was like always getting, you know, reprimanded by the family that you stupid guy, why don't you get good grades? Why don't you read? Why can't you read? You know, all that stuff. Um, so I think uh, you, you have to solve problems different ways. 
and you know, here's a story just to give you a sense is like, so I couldn't learn, but I had to pass high school. And so my solution was, was that I, this was before like little tape recorders existed. So I had this tape recorder that I took apart, made really small, ran the wire to a switch. Then that switch wire ran up behind my long hair and into my ear. And I taped everything that I could imagine to try to be able to know how to pass the final exam. You know, like, what, what are all the things? Because I couldn't remember anything. I could study forever, but couldn't remember. But the point of the story is, is I found a solution. Yeah. It wasn't that I cheated. It wasn't that I needed the extra information. By going through the process of taping everything, eventually it got logged into my brain, and, okay, I didn't need it. But I needed some of it to spark the memory. Like, oh, oh, yeah, 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 okay, that's what that is, or whatever. So it's like, you know, if you have that disability, then what, how, well, how do you solve it? And so throughout my life, I've used very similar things to solve problems. It's like I'm always anticipating what's the next move. How do I, how do, I do it? So, for example, giving a really large, like, so a lot of times I have to go do speeches and I have to, like, address a really large crowd, like 1,000, 500, 100, whatever, for all my things. So because I couldn't speak to everybody in the room, I would make the most insane videos of what I did. And so from an early age on, from the very beginning, I was already on the computer editing like crazy to make this 10-minute video. Now the video is playing. The crowd is engaged. They're just like, oh, my God, this is so great. Now I'm comfortable. And while the video is going, I'm saying, and then we did this. And then we did that, but over top of the video. Right. Because now I'm comfortable. Yeah, your shield, you have your shield. So I have my say. shield, and I, already, I don't have to explain anything because I'm not lost. And then at the end, I ask for questions. And then everybody asks questions. Well, I can answer questions. You but can I can't, focus on I that. I can't start a non-question I mean, you program. say that, but you're, you're talking about things quite naturally right now. No, no, you know? I, I, mean, I am because I'm I, so... Even me making you do that yeah. bought me time. Oh, even so, so reading, reading the little article on you beforehand. That yeah. bought me time and uh-huh. also made me feel comfortable that you knew where I was coming from. And yep. so this is a dance of me just slowing it all down, collecting myself enough to be able to have the conversation with you. Yeah, I know. Great. So it's just a, it's just so over the years, you, you figure out how can I coexist in the world with all these people where it's just bang, 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 bang. Yeah, but you're solution-oriented immediately, right? Yeah, yeah. Like much in the same way when you you jury-rigged that tape recorder and and wired it. Exactly. I'm I'm a solution finder. And put a kite on a skateboard. I mean, that was... Yeah, so so you can see very early on, this wasn't, this was just a progression of created by having to solve a problem because I had this problem. So my whole life is just solving problems. And I'm a very good problem solver because I have to solve it every day yeah. just to get through the day. Yeah. Like, I can't remember your phone number. Yeah. All the numbers are backwards. I can't even remember three numbers in a row. Right. If you ask me to turn right, I wait and think about it. If you ask me which is my right hand, I would actually write something to remember which is right and left. But you throw me on a board or in a race car, or whatever, there's no issue because it's just all the information's coming in, 
and all the information is going out what to do next. So the first time you stepped on a windsurf board, that must have been an incredibly liberating and eye-opening experience for you. Yeah, because all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're flying. And if you look at the, the progression of, you know, windsurfing to kitesurfing to foiling to jet foiling, each one of those progressions is actually just being like 2D to 3D to 4D to 5D. Like how much information is now coming in? How free are you? You know, so that's, and that's what's really interesting about all the things I've done. They just become, in a way, more free right. to fly. Right. To the point, like, I don't know if you can print this, but I, I'm, I'm one of the pilots for the, the drones. So I'm, like, involved in so many projects, like, not just that, Right. So I'm actually one of the guys that's flying the drones, like in the drone. Wait, what? Like, like eight, eight. I can show you some video. <laughs> eight propellers around me, and I'm flying over the water for five minutes all the time, like testing. What? <laughs> Just for what? To what end? To to make a flying vehicle for people. Like that's the next thing, right? Is to be completely free, where you just take off and go. Is this all rooted in childhood fascination with certain books or programs, or where where did this this um, I mean I, sense of like I don't know if it's pushing the limits or just this kind of you have a wild imagination, right? Uh, and you've well, always I'm had just that. with also, but I'm also just with like minded people that are also doing. So there's all teams yeah. to make all this stuff happen. I just happen to be. A member of the team because I participate. I mean, I'm a I'm an asset, or I have a skill set that they need. It takes a whole team to do all these things. Sure, do, which course. is what you were saying. The benefits of being in the San Francisco Bay Area, where you have this this exactly kind of absolute hub of talent and and education. Yeah, and and my history of developing windsurfing and developing kite surfing. Yeah, and then Bacani, and then yeah, whatever I want to be involved in. Yeah, I can go to the next step so let's talk about windsurfing a bit um you so, were active competitively in the late 80s is that correct late 80s or anything, which seemed to me kind of a boom time for that sport yeah um, i mean i moved to maui in 82 oh right okay Early so on. so first i uh graduated from high school immediately went to santa barbara because i figured um in a van with a windsurfer on top. Yeah. That okay, I got to go to California. It's too cold. It's winter. You're such a cliche, Don. I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drive down. I'm and I, you know, I was on the Oregon coast and finally made Santa Barbara. My grandmother lived there. If I was gonna live at her house, I needed to go to college. Right. So, but I couldn't afford college, so I went as my cousin, and I took you know things that I thought would be useful in life: celestial navigation, that sounded good, and drafting. You know, a couple of like art, uh, you know, courses that I thought, okay, I can use those. So everything was going great. I was, uh, you know, going to school and unfortunately was on the beach. So, of course, I was windsurfing instead of going to school or windsurfing right away. But that didn't really matter because my cousin was going out the daughter with a daughter of one of the teachers eventually. So then the teacher went to me and go, we know you're not. What's his name? Um, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to no longer go to college. Why did you want to go? I mean, wasn't it at a time? I wanted to learn. Have, I, yeah. I, I really did want to learn those skills. 
because they were they were necessary. You know, drafting was like design, and um, and so that's when navigation was. Well, I'm sailing around the world. Little did I know that I would even. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. So I. So I. Uh, uh, so then at that point, I was like, okay, there's nothing left for me here. My friends in Santa Barbara that I made quickly because of my windsurfing skills, they were all impressed. They gravitated. They said, Don, you got to go to Maui. We know someone in Maui. You can stay at his house. Turned out to be a famous surfer, Brad Lewis. There I am, arriving in Maui, $400, sleeping on his floor. The next day, he gets me a job at uh, a famous uh, restaurant, Swan Court. Um, I drive and work every day, uh, save up enough money to buy some used windsurf sails, some more used windsurf sails, um, windsurf like crazy every day, put myself in front of the very best guys and train with them every day and then win a race in Maui all within the first year. And then once I won the race, I got sponsored and I didn't have to work anymore at the restaurant so i was making enough money to start traveling around the world wow it happened that quickly in the world cup and and for you was that the dream you know it's like it's never like a dream it's um i mean some really wild things happen it was like so i'm in or i'm in vancouver and i see this video of robbie nash um windsurfing i'm like oh i gotta do that did I ever think at that point when I was there that I would go to Maui? No. Did I ever think at that point that I would then be racing against Robbie Nash? And then did I ever think that I would beat him? And then did I ever think I would create a company with him? Yeah. It's like, yeah. it never even crossed my mind. Robbie that, Nash, by the way, for those who don't know, yeah. is is one of the top windsurfers of all time, really. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, and kite surfing. And, yeah. And pioneer. all water sports. Pioneers. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So... But I never thought that um, this is the path, this is the person I want to meet. It just all falls into place as you create momentum. So the momentum is, is that you arrive, you enjoy what you're doing, you have passion. As soon as you have passion, like-minded people with passion respect you, and then you can collaborate. So the main thing is just to create the momentum, show that you have, you're passionate about what you do, and then... And then the rest is, yeah. And is, and for you, the the design element was always there, right? You were because you were a tinker from a young age. It, it seems like it it wasn't just enough to get your stoke surfing around the world and yeah. I mean, like, so as soon as you're racing in the World Cup, it's all about equipment. So you it's your race car, and you're constantly tuning it. You're constantly designing it. You're changing it. You're 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 rigging your equipment differently. You're changing what you're doing to make yourself faster. And um, we got to the point where a lot of larger guys got into, into windsurfing, Bjorn Duckenbeck and other guys. And they were already, you know, like 20, or, you know, like 50 pounds heavier than me. So I started wearing weight. I put a weight jacket on so that I could have the same weight and the same leverage to be able to go the same speed when it was light wind. And so you have to do those things. You have to think like, all right, how am I going to be able to beat them now? My equipment is better because I was the designer. So I made the very best equipment. I made the sales for Robbie, Anders, all the famous guys, Jason Polakow, 
So I knew how to make the best equipment. So my equipment wasn't the problem. What became the problem was my weight. I wasn't as big. If it was windy, it didn't matter because then it was technique. So then if it's a crazy but large waves and 40 knots of wind, well, then it's even playing field. But if it's 10 knots of wind or 15 knots of wind, then obviously the guy who's the stiffest and holds the sails straight as possible um, wins the race. So let's say that if it answered your question, you know, you just, um, it's a necessity right. to design and constantly change, just like the projects I do now. I can't ride the same thing twice. Yeah. It's not possible. Yeah. I can't ride that thing there that I rode last night identical to what it is right now. I'm yeah. going to put a different prop on. I'm going to put a different battery. I'm going to the take all the foil de- Yeah, the dead yeah. foil. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, there's no, um, there's nothing for me to ride right. the skateboard twice that's motorized. I have one. I rode it once. Oh, that's super interesting. It's too loud. It's too vibrating. I got to take it apart and fix it before I'll ride it again <laughs> because it's not right. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's, that could be a problem too, right? Yeah. You can't just go out and enjoy going for a paddleboard. Right. You know? Just yeah. It there. It's okay. Because uh, your mind's always working. Yeah. You're just always trying to solve yeah, the next problem. Or you want to. I mean, it's not like yeah. it's a problem. It's just like... It's not uh, like it's an addiction or yeah. anything. It's just, it's a compulsion, if anything. Yeah, and you can imagine being with people who aren't like that. I'm, they go I'm not in, like that They go all. insane because right. they're just like, yeah, can't we just sit on the beach? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so I have this saying, like, and I've lived by it for a long, long time. Is like, every day you don't is one less day you can. So... Every single day, you, whether it's making love, whether it's solving the problem, whether it's pushing the limits, whether it's reaching out, whether it's reading the new whatever there is, whether it's news coming in, it's like that's one less day. That's a really a revealing of a really kind of purpose-driven lifestyle, though, right? What about, and, and I don't want to go too far down this path, but what about just checking out and relaxing? Uh, yeah, I don't know how to do that. But I don't actually, I don't walk around thinking, oh, every day I don't have one less day I can. I'm just saying, if you look at my life, that's how it looks. So it's not that I am like pushing that on everyone else either. Sure. I'm just like, I'm, I'm a solo, right? So I'm, there I am alone going around the island on the board in dusk, enjoying myself, thinking while I'm doing it. And one thing that people don't realize is that when I'm on there, I'm actually in meditation. When I'm kite surfing and I'm out there and I'm looking around and everything is peaceful. And so then I'm in bliss, just there. And whatever's going through my mind. Whereas other people can sit on a beach and do that or whatever. It happens to me when I'm in these, what you may think is extreme, to me is relaxing because now I'm just in the flow of what's happening. So, you know, 20 knot winds, big waves, 30 knot winds, that, that's a, that's a comfort zone. For yeah. That's, almost. yeah, that's totally for me. Um, no stress. Stress is when I'm in this flying thing that I have no history. 
and now I'm at the mercy of, you know, eight blades. Yeah. That yeah. was not good. That was like a real eye-opener of like pushing the limit of what is possible. But then, well, then, you know, you're, you're there and you're looking around and you're like, ah, no problem. Yeah. Well, this let's, let's get there. Let's get yeah. there. You, you, um, so there's, you know, there's obviously there's fear and I, and I've ridden the biggest ways, not the biggest, but I've ridden as big as they get at, at outer Spreckelsville. Uh, and you know, Jaws is that the North shore of Maui? The North shore of Maui. Mm-hmm. And I won't go to that 10% spot where you get killed. I'm 10% away. I'm just on it just as big as everybody else. But I do have this sense of like, okay, it's risk management. How much risk am I willing to take? I'm out in the kite boat. Could I go faster than 40? Yeah, no problem. But I have five other guys on board. Is it worth it? I don't have that gene that says, I'm going to smack it. I'm going to be right there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push it and we're going to explode. And that's a really good one to have is because that's what keeps everybody else safe because some people have that and you sure. need to pull them back because we're all going to die if, if that guy gets into control. So on the team, you need one guy that's always like, all right, we're only going to 90%. We're not going to hit that 100%. Was there, was there an episode in your life where that, that taught you that? I wouldn't say it taught me that, but I'm just very aware of the situation. And I think I'm more aware because of like I was telling you earlier about all the guys who are professional sailors that sailed around the world or professional at their sports. They're completely in tune with what's going on. Until you have another one of those guys, and I, I have many friends like that sitting next to you in those extreme situations, doesn't even cross my mind to think about the 90%. If you're with people that don't know the 90% rule, then you, then you have to go into that mode. So if I'm like with Jacques Vincent, who sailed around the world 10 times, I just hand him the wheel. I don't even tell him how to do it. He just does it because... He's already in tune with the conditions. He's anticipating everything's happening. He's moving, he's turning, he's doing whatever the boat needs to do. But if you don't have that person, then you need to slow it all down Yeah. because they get excited and then they want to push for, the, for that moment. And that's when people get hurt. Right. So like for me in windsurfing and kitesurfing, in those super extreme conditions, I would always hold back that, 10, 15 percent. Yeah. To go another day. Because actually, I wanted to go another day and I wanted to test another thing and I didn't need that photo. Yeah. Because I wasn't working for photos. My, my contribution was actually behind the scenes, creating a sport or creating the equipment or creating the movie or creating the movement, the motivation. So, how did the kite passion. surfing come about? So, kite surfing, um, you know, originally, there was a friend of mine, Corey, who was doing it with water skis and delta kites, a kind of a framed kite um, in the gorge. He kind of set the stage that this exists, you know, from my knowledge. He came and visited me a few times in Hawaii, um, showed me his latest creations, which were amazing for the time, but required a different kind of uh, ability to be able to do them. One was that you needed to be a water skier because... And you needed really big legs to be able to support those skis. And then the technique of actually launching the kite in 
Maui was difficult because the kite would be in the water and it was framed and we had waves. And so it was easily break apart. The bar was heavy and it could smack you in the face because there were so much winches and everything going on in it. It didn't really lend itself to kite surfing. This was at the time it was called kite skiing. Um, and so I looked at all that and I was, and I was the sail designer for Gastra and I was um, heavily in the, into R&D and I went out with him and I, I saw the performance and I, I seen him in the gorge winning races. I was like, you know, this is not going to work for, for Hawaii. It's just not there. It's really cool, but it's not really there. And then I was in Sri Lanka and uh, pr- putting sails into production. We, we had a pr- production facility there. And there was these ram air kites. They were just like these little kites used with buggies. And I had one of these kites and I, uh, from another f- factory and I started flying it. And one thing led to another where now I'm on a big like, you know, SUP board, but it was a windsurf board, right. pulling myself around on some lake in Sri Lanka. I bought a, a few more of those kites and I was kind of flying them around and I was in Sardinia on the beach and I was learning to loop them and just kind of becoming one with them. At the same time, many other people were working on kites and surfing or some, some variation, right? I came back to Mali. Um, a friend of mine, uh, one of my team riders comes in with this inflatable kite made by Bruno, the Wipika kite. And it was just this work of art. Was that the guy in Europe? Who did yeah, it? yeah, yeah, the French guy. French guy, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so I'm like, where did you get this? This is amazing. This, yeah. this is incredible, like blah, blah, blah. So next thing, I've got that guy on an airplane coming to Hawaii, Bruno, and, um, and, uh, and he has a patent on this thing. And I'm like, okay, we need to license this patent from you. And where I... The, the, where I contributed to the sport was I had already done 10 years of work on the computer program to develop sales instantly. Like I had the best program there was to, to be able to do it. And I had a whole team of programmers surrounding me, constantly improving that every day. Two guys, that's all their job was all year long. And so I already had the base of how to do this right and how to do it quickly and how to prototype fast. So I immediately went into my Don Monster mode and made 300 prototypes, like just in a year, 300. And I was getting them as fast as FedEx could bring them in. And I would even not even test them because I'd already moved on because FedEx didn't come fast enough. And so within a year, I completely changed the face of what it was going to be. And then that just led to all the different developments that I made that that allowed the sport to grow so quickly. So you just, you used a program that was, that you developed to... Develop kite to develop, or windsurfing. To, to develop windsurfing, you just, you just transitioned that into, modified it and transitioned it into developing Right, kites. because the, the base was there, all the math was there sure, to yeah. do it. And, and working in China, because I had already set up the CAD CAM system right. there where computer-aided cutting... And I already had the factory and I already had 10,000 employees making whatever needed to be made. When was this, by the way? Is this like the 90s? This was 97. 97 already, yeah. okay. 96. Yeah. When, when was kitesurfing's like origin or boom or when did it start kind of really picking up? Well, I mean, the F- Nash, we were, you know, we basically got it fully started. So that was 98. 98, so, okay. 
you know, I mean, the funny story is I went to the factory in China. I was like, okay, I need one girl to sew for me for these kites. I say to my friend David that owns the factory that makes all of my sales. Yeah, Don, you can have one. Well, okay, one. I need 10. And then like, you know, the next year we're selling 20,000. Wow. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time in the factory figuring out how do you make kites not twisted or not, you know, not screwed up and how do all the materials work. So, you know, I spent some years, over four months a year, just in the factory making it work. No one's asking me to do that. It was just, I had to get it done. I had to make it work. It's like the jet foiler. Nobody's asking me to make that. But I'm in there every day, every night, modifying, getting that to work yeah. so everybody else can have that experience. So for me, for like kite surfing, it wasn't that I just wanted everyone else to kite surf. Like I was just calling up my friends around the world going, you got to do this. You, this is amazing. You, you have to go kite surfing. And everybody was because it came from Hawaii and they saw the videos I was making and the pictures and they're just like, yeah, Don Sun went over. So I was just sending kites to everybody. Yeah. And then yeah. they, because they were the leaders yeah. in their communities for windsurfing, it just snowballed because sure. I had the promotional vehicle already. The vehicle was already there right. from windsurfing. The people were there. My reputation was already there. The importers were already there. Right, right. So it was just like, well, if you can make it, you can sell it. When did you start looking at it as an energy alternative? Yeah, that's interesting. So I was in uh, Holland at one of the first kitesurfing events, and this astronaut walks up to me. His name's Wilbo Ockels. He was the first Dutch astronaut. Amazing name. Walks up to me on the beach, and he's like, you know, I have this vision, and I've been thinking about this for a long time of actually using kites to uh, make energy. And he's looking at the kite I had designed and I'm, I'm in my wetsuit, I'm on the beach, about to go out for my heat. And he's like, that shouldn't fly. Why does it fly? How could you have this leading edge like that? And like, so I started explaining to him why it worked and why, why, why all these things I had done, why did I do them? And he's like, we need to work together because I have this concept of this ladder mill to generate electricity and... I was like, okay, you know, that sounds interesting. I think I can make some prototypes for you to make that happen. Um, So the more I looked at it, he sent me more and more uh, drawings, and he was Delft's university. So he turned out he was like the main guy at Delft. Um, So uh, the the relationship didn't really go anywhere because... um, I didn't really believe in the concept of how he wanted to do it. So it was basically like a ski lift concept. And there were some weight issues that I didn't think would work. So I went on my merry way. I kept developing kite surfing. Um, it was, you know, it needed my full-time uh, support. And so I, uh, you know, I was giving it all that support. And then as the years went on, I and you have to, you know, you have to look at this like it's ten years, right? Ten years of kite surfing now. So now it's like, I don't know, two thousand three. I start playing around with canoes and kites. You've seen the pictures yeah. and whatever. And the reason I did that was I wanted everybody else to experience it. I didn't want them to necessarily experience the boat. I wanted them to experience the kite. And so first, I put a kite on my parents' sailboat. They're just like, "Oh my god, it doesn't heal." My mother's like, "I can cook." There's no healing. This is great, Don. I'm like, well, it's not about 
the cooking mom, whatever. So, <laughs> so I like, oh, this is this is pretty interesting. Wow, I just pulled, you know, this big, huge, heavy, ten thousand pound sailboat with an eighteen meter kite, and we were doing six knots. That was the max speed of the boat. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So then, you know, I was doing some island crossings with the canoes and kites, and that was really fun. We would go out and catch huge waves, and, you know, I had all the crazy watermen on board, like Martin Kai when he was, like, six, you know, was on board even then. Um, Kai Lenny, who's now probably one of the top young watermen in the world. and and Yeah, if not the... the, uh, Yeah, (laughs) I mean, probably the guy at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And... um, so that always started happening. And then I was getting kind of restless at Nash. You know, I was like, wasn't really everything that I wanted to do again. You know, like now kitesurfing was established. We had, you know, 30 different competitors. It was no longer we were pushing the envelope with, you know, a huge amount of income to keep developing. It was becoming like tell- selling toilet paper. And, you know, it was just like, well, there's their brand of toilet paper. It's all the same kind of, you know. So it wasn't really that interesting. and But the kite boat to me was like, that was super interesting. And foils, you know, getting this boat on foils was like huge but for just, me. Just from a sporting perspective? No, no, just a-, a feeling. I mean, if you can just imagine going through the waves, being in a canoe, holding onto this kite with everybody in the back and the exhilaration of all this happening and they'd never kite surfed. Right. And they just can't believe how amazing this all feels. Yeah. So yeah. it was just like taking people for rides. Yeah. Really. And then of course catching huge waves and but in the, scaring yourself. In the ba- <laughs> but in the back of your mind, uh surely you were kind of thinking back to that conversation on the beach with the astronaut thinking So hmm. this is coming up. Yeah. So th- so then I'm like, okay, um I'm gonna go get Red Bull. So I create this huge presentation for Red Bull. I'm gonna get them to sponsor the kite boat to go around the world. So uh, this was in 2005. Made all the renderings, superimposed logos, got it all set up. Robbie knows who I need to talk to. I already know who to talk to because I'm already doing everything for them anyways on other projects. And then I met Larry and Sergey, who were windsurfers at the time, just humble guys with, you know, this company, um, you know, just hanging out, sleeping, you know, just doing the normal thing, right? And was Google a thing at that point? Google was a thing. Yeah. But yeah. not to the ex- not like not not a huge thing. What it in, is now. Is not it? A, yeah, not now. It was obviously it was huge in 2005, I, 2006. But I want to also add in here that uh, there seems to be kind of a, a, a group of Silicon Valley types who really gravitate towards kite surfing. Yeah, I mean, and now there's, thing. if you don't kite surf, you don't get to go to the Mai Tai event. Which is the biggest Bill networking thing in the world. Thing now. in the world if you're a VC or yeah. someone who wants to get their big break. or yeah. Whether you're snow kiting in the winter or kite surfing in the summer with yeah. Bill and oh, Susie. Snow kiting sounds so cool, by the way. But anyway, we'll get yeah. to that. Uh, so. Yeah, so I was. Uh, um, you were talking to them. Yeah, I mean, so you know, we were just. Um, I had come to the Bay Area to look for the technology that would be needed to um, do the autonomous part of my project to go around the world, and so I met a bunch of like-minded people in the Bay Area, and so I started to um, 
yeah, try to put together that team for the Red Bull project, not for the Google project. And while doing that, I met um, Larry and Sergey and Carl, um, Larry's brother. And we were windsurfing and one thing led to nothing. Next, I, we were on the fastest sailboat in the world at the time, Geronimo. And then we were, then I had like a little catamaran here that I was testing some kites on. And all of a sudden they were on it. And, and I, you know, I, they, I told them, yeah, I'm going to, you know, do this Red Bull thing. And they're like, ah, you know, Don, you should really think about saving the world, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I, at the same time, I'm like, you know, I'm going to produce power on this boat, just not like fishing, just like I'm going to produce power because I need power. And yeah, you know, I can use the kite to produce power. And they're like, you know, we've thought about this a lot, Don, and we really believe in producing energy from kites. So they had already in their own minds been down this path. And if you know them, they're constantly searching and thinking about new ways to, to produce energy, whatever it is, like nonstop, whether it's transportation, energy, you name it, they're constantly thinking all the time. So it was nothing new to them when I'm like, yeah, you know, I've got uh, a gigawatt of power already out there, you know, every single kite surfer is actually making power right now as we speak, right? Because they're right. pulling. <laughs> so yeah, of course we can make energy. They're like, well, well, let's let's start a company and um, let's pursue this and let's use the kite boat as a promotional vehicle to spread the word that yes, here's a here's an indication that oh my god, with those tiny little lines, this lightweight kite, we're pulling a boat that weighs two thousand pounds with everybody on it. How is that possible? So that's how it started. So I you know I I had to pitch um, Google with a bunch of uh, top guys sitting in the room and I was nervous and I was like, I had my little presentation about why we should do this because they asked me to come in and do it. And then I got like one word in and then Larry just took over and said, yeah, Don's amazing. We're going to do this. I'm going to do it. Or um, uh, if if the company doesn't want to do it. So let's meet outside. So there they left me in a little room. For like two minutes, they all come back and big smiles on their face. And so they funded us uh, $10 million right off the bat to start. And what happened to your really uh, detailed and... uh, Never looked at. (laughs) Deck that you put in all this sweat equity into. (laughs) With a bunch of different people, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Nothing. Yeah, yeah. Great. (laughs) Hey, sometimes it's that easy. Well, or... They already had the vision, right? And so it was. They just need the they, vehicle. They, they need the. Was that comfortable for you to go into that? You know, because you you've been looking at it kind of no. from a tech, from a gear, from a well, you've been looking at it from a gear perspective, really, and 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 a and a stoke perspective and a thrill perspective um, to look at it. But but also as a technical, how do you put something in production for twenty thousand units? Like that's sure. very technical. Sure, but, to, but to solve the tack into environmentalism. Yeah, I mean, so at that time, it was overwhelming, obviously. Like, how do you solve this? Well, you got to create a team. And so we started to create the, the amazing team that was going to solve this with Saul Griffith and Corwin Hardham. And, and then, you know, then the, crew, the, the team just grew, grew, and grew with PhDs and whatever we needed, double E's, Mechies, um, 
I don't even point. know what that is, but that sounds but you, impressive. You, no, I mean, they're just mechanical engineers <laughs> got or it. electrical Mecha- engineers. Yeah. Electrical engineers, yeah. got it. Thank you. And so then, you know, it just takes on a whole new shape as it grows and, yeah. You did that for several years. I mean, I think ten that years. was like two- Another 10 years, Makani. Really? Yeah. Oh, so it started in what, 2006? Six, and then... Okay, so yeah, not 10. Yeah, yeah. Nine years. Nine years. You left in... 2013. You left in 2013. Yeah, four, seven. Seven, Yeah, seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Math, whatever. Yeah. Both of our weak spots, it seems. Maybe yours less so, actually. But uh, is... When you left, was it... Did it just feel like time, or was it... Was it because you were going in a different direction mentally in your head? Yeah, so so it was an interesting result um, or circumstances that happened. So my co-founder, Corwin Hardham, so we were co-CEOs. Um, uh, he, he unexpectedly died at his desk at 38 years old or something um, of a heart attack. And it, yeah, he was in great shape. He windsurfed, kitesurfed, did more than anybody every day. But anyways, he... He had some heart failure, mm-hmm. random. And um, and he was like the leader of the team. And I was the behind-the-scene guy that basically was older and was just kind of keeping the momentum with the with Google and everything around. So so when he left, or you know, when he passed away, um, pretty much you know, all the burden was now on me. And, and other team leaders within the group. And so we, you know, we, we kept going, of course. We, we were in the middle of negotiating at that time to bring the company into Google. So I'd already set up the whole framework to come into Google. And at that time, um, that all happened, that, that worked out, so that Google purchased the company. And... It seemed like at that time, my role was really more in the babysitting role rather than like what you saw at the shop over the there. The forefront testing. Yeah, ideating. now I was like basically with lots of young engineers kind of all jockeying for position and controlling each other and whatever. You're a manager. Yeah. And so I'm not like I can do that job, but that's like that's work. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Which and is so, what you're trying to avoid. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I decided, look, my skill set is way more suited to pursuing the kite boat, which was my still my passion, and we were making great progress. And so I basically, yeah, removed myself from that equation. And when it went into Google, it became extremely structured and, gor- and um, corporate, So, which was not really where I wanted to be in that scenario at that time in my life, you know? It's, and so, and it didn't allow me to work on all these projects that I get to work on. I mean, you know, a lot wasn't of, my I, personality. I, well, like, I was going to gonna say, but, but, but you know, your personality then, because I think a lot of people in that situation would have been like, Hey, this, this could lead to something even bigger. Oh, I, I could have gotten know. tons of money and tons of stock and sure. tons of like whatever. Yeah. But it, it just wasn't, wasn't really what I was good at. And it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I wasn't in it. I'm not in it for the money. So have you just, always known what you were good at? I mean, have you yeah. always known the things you can do really well and the things you absolutely. can't do really well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
And then I surround myself by people who can do all those things that yeah. I can't do. And so that's the trick is like to, you're only as good as your team. Right. And you're just a member. Right. So people don't work for me. They work with me. Yeah. If I hire a new person, I'm like, uh, looking forward to working with you. And I hope you can learn as much as you can while you're at this stop in your life with us. And when you need to leave or move on to your next destiny, I will be proud to have been part of your path. So don't feel at any time that you need to stay if your path needs to change. Because I want you to change. I want you to grow. I want you to leave. I want you to learn as much as you can from here and then go off and do the thing you want to do. That sounds this like is the some, te- This is the stepping stone yeah, for you to go. That sounds like some incredibly like ninja-like zen management technique that but it's real. I someone mean, it, would charge a lot of money for. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think if you... Every employee wants or, you know, every person needs that push or needs that confidence that they need to work on the thing that they need to work on. Like, what's important to you? And so if I have their time, that's a blessing that I have their time. And then I'm actually stealing time out of their life every day they can, you know? They're going to do something for me. So I'm already taking their time. So I want it to be a very useful time in their life that they'll look back on and go, oh, I learned all these skills. I was exposed to this. This is possible. Whether it's the way you organize the shop or how you build things quickly or how you are exhilarated going 40 knots over the sea, it's all possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was there... uh, So so we should say that, that... a, you're you're independent of them, but you're still the kite boat project is is probably your main focus now, and and the idea there is um, you have what looks it's, it's kind of like a trimaran I yes. would say right yeah trimaran that, on, that goes on up on foils yeah uh, that you control from a seat and there's two wing seats there as well um, for people to control uh, different aspects of the sail is that correct the kite and the, the boat so the the, boat. basically uh-huh. the boat is an airplane and you've got all the controls of roll and pitch right and you can control them depending on the sea state and the angle of attack and you go zero to 40 in what seems like seconds seconds yeah, yeah. and and we should also like i love this anecdote so i'm just going to repeat it here that you know the america's cup boats were uh racing on the bay a couple of years back when the america's cup was held here and they are the absolute forefront of sailing technology and the speeds are incredible. Uh, and you guys were just screaming by them. Yeah, in different conditions, um, you know, we were able to put the kite at, you know, 240 feet up in the sky and there's wind up there and there's no wind down on the water. Yeah. So we we're able to do things that they can't do. But that's not to say they're, they're, they're also under a bunch of rules. So if they were given... Free, free, free rain. rain. They, obviously, they can do anything too. Yeah. And now, if you look at their latest boats, you know they're hitting fifty knots. Yeah. So they've they've surpassed us on yeah on uh, speed. And but at the same time, that's the limit. So so cavitation happens at fifty. <laughs> so there's there's a number of different uh, projects you have. You have the jet foil, which you've mentioned. Um, you have uh, the airfoil as well. Yeah, right? the airfoiler, yeah. Which is ele- electronically powered? Or? It's an electric-powered boat um, that has props, so right. props not in the water. Okay, okay. And then there's a, an electric foil boat where the prop is in the water. Okay. 
Um, yeah, and I mean, we make different inflated things, like lots of drop stitch construction inflation. Yeah. So if you can imagine building really large docks or platforms that you can inflate instantly and all of a sudden there's a whole marina or whatever you need. So we make super interesting things like that. That's one of the videos I sent you. Yeah, you can great. see okay. um, what that is. So so we're, we're like developing stuff in South Korea, in China, in Vietnam, uh, manufacturing in the United States, doing our prototype work here. Also, even having stuff made in Holland and Poland. So we have stuff like happening in all different countries, depending on who's the specialist of that technique. Tell, tell, me, about the, tell me about the upcoming project now. The, the, the jet foiler? No, not the jet foiler. The one with uh, the, the, the record attempt oh. between San Francisco and Hawaii. Yeah, so that um, basically we're building a 60-foot by 40-foot platform, uh, probably going to use somewhere around a 50 to 60-meter kite, and we hope to cross from L.A. to Hawaii in less than three days. So the current record is three days, 19 hours. We'll have a six-person crew, uh, three-hour shifts, and we will pick a wind window, a weather window, that optimizes our platform. So where we're really fast is in the 10 to 12 knot range. This is where the seas will be flat. The kite will be the most, give the most performance. And um, our small boat, you know, even though it's 60 feet long, that's actually small for record attempts, um, will perform the best. 10 to 12 knot wind, by the way, just for those who don't know, that's, that's what about? Like 14. 14 miles an yeah, hour. Yeah, 13 miles an hour. Okay. So right. just, just white capping. Yeah. And for us, what's really interesting is we can go more than three times wind speed. Right. So that's where we're really efficient. We're really light. As the wind increases, it starts to level out. So if it's blowing 25, you know, we're doing one and a half times wind speed. Because you get to a point where the foils only go 40. Right. They don't really go any faster because there's cavitation issues. And I was showing you that special foil right. earlier. The one with the hard sol- edge. That solves front. that, but um, that's not a good solution for crossing an ocean. So the, the trick is going to be is actually weather rotting is the key. And that's how all the boats that go around the world to break the records. It's actually the guy who does the weather rotting, puts them in the right position with the right sea state and the right wind. And so it's a waiting game looking at an 18-day forecast and figuring out where the hurricane is and figuring out how that hurricane can help you in changing the wind direction, in flattening the seas, being hurricanes behind you, seas are flat in front of you, and you're racing it across using its wind. So you're trying to beat the hurricane. You're trying to, yeah, you're trying to use, and there's hurricanes all the time, right? Going that, up that from Alaska insane. and... and the Bahamas. So the hard part is like, don't get stuck in the hurricane, of course. And that's when it gets dangerous. It's sure. like making the right decision at the right time to, to go. So, yeah. So that's the trick is just, it's weather routing. So as what? far as like going fast in the boat, we, we've already proven that. We've proven that the kite works. We've done enough testing for the last 10 years to show that this is viable. So why do you want to do this? Because I've been flying in an airplane back and forth. No, that's not the reason. 
I don't know. I think it's just, um, yeah, it's just this passion and it's a distance. It's achievable, but it's, a, it's long enough that it's real. And the first, we would be the first boat pulled by a kite at those speeds to make that kind of distance. So 2,500 miles. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, I, I did it on Hydropter two years ago. And it was just, a, you know, it's, it's pushing yourself to that yeah. level um, it's just exhilarating. I mean, the feeling of flying across the water in open ocean with nothing around at those speeds and solving all the problems. When we went across in the hydropter, we lost the water maker, we lost power, we lost everything. At one point, we were using my handheld compass. The hydropter, by the way, is a trimaran, right? A it's sailing a tri- trimaran. Sailing trimaran that goes Super fast. 57 knots. 57 knots. Yeah, that's, that's its top speed. That's absolutely And we were cruising at 43 knots Yikes. across the ocean. So it's exhilarating, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's personal. Yeah. But do you also see, like, is there a message also that comes with this, with your successful well, I mean, record attempt? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's always been like just bringing awareness and sharing uh, that this is possible. So whether it's to motivate people to look at kites that they're an energy source um, in combination with the how Makani's doing it or other companies that are doing similar projects now, it just brings awareness to everybody that like, wow, this kite is a thousand feet up. It's catching air that doesn't really exist at 30 feet. It's lightweight. Um, it's using forces in the right way. So I think, you know, indirectly, it's a record attempt it's an ego, you know, it's like something I said I want to do. And so I get everything I ever want. It just takes time sometimes, right? More time. So eventually I'll make this crossing. Who knows if I'll hit something? 50% chance of hitting and destroying the boat. There's so much garbage now in the water. Um, but it doesn't matter because we'll regroup and we'll go again. And eventually we'll go around the world. Whether or not I'm on the boat, I'll be involved somehow. Yeah. Um, I would like to be on the boat, but maybe that's too long from now. Maybe I'm not in shape to actually do such a, a feat, right? Yeah. And, but, you know, and as far as like creating energy, of course we're going to be creating energy as we're being pulled by the kite. And that's how we're going to power the boat. You know, we're going to use that propulsion to either drag something that's generating electricity or we've got solar on the kite, solar on the boat. So and where's know, that electricity going to go? I mean, um, what's you know, it going to power? You, know, you need to power your navigation. You need sure. to power okay. your water maker. You need to. So rather than have a battery on board, well, you have a battery too and store the energy. But okay. you, you you definitely need power to, yeah, for safety. Right, right. I mean, of course you don't. You can survive, but nowadays, yeah. yeah. The potential of wind energy in you know rural communities in uh, I mean I've seen. I've seen attempts now, uh, you know, to, to power tankers um, mm-hmm. in the open ocean with, with massive, massive kites, you know, at least power, yeah. like, you know, provide electricity to them. Uh, is this, how far away is this? I mean, we're, it seems like the, the nation, America, but then also globally, you know, globally, they're a bit moving a little bit further along when it comes to sustainable energy sources, alternative, renewable energy sources, solar, wind, et cetera. Um, how far away are we from, you know, as a I think the world is actually really, it. really close. So, you know, there's five different groups working full time now on this project. So in, in England, in Holland, in Spain, 
in France, everybody has a funded project, very well funded, like in the millions to do it, you know. So Makani's probably the best funded project at the moment um, with the largest team, but the other teams are, uh, you know, just as smart and just as, you know, set up. And so I, I predict, I mean, everybody's always like, oh, it's going to be next year. But I predict, you know, in 10 years, it'll actually be viable and they will be producing energy and at, at large scale. So, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, at, at any given time, um, you know, the, there's solar wind, right? And solar wind is actually heat and solar wind is also, you know, it's basically the sun, right? So it's either heating a panel on the earth, creating electricity or the sun is heating up the earth and creating wind so you want to extract that because it's just free it's just right there you know there's enough if, there's enough energy in the wind to power the earth like you know 760 times over you know, just with small yeah. installations yeah so it's there so it's I all mean, there it's yeah. just it's just um and now you know with the ability to fly a hundred drones at once and they don't bump into each other you can imagine you've got a field of a hundred kite systems all next to each other in a close proximity, all flying in a pattern, all generating electricity in low amount of wind. Right, right. Um, on towers, whether they're on boats in the water, if they're whether on towers in the water, whether on land. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be a contributing factor. I'm not saying it's going to take over from solar or hydro dams or yeah. you know everything else but right. it's definitely a contributing a huge contributing factor right right it's gonna be there and for you it's it's still about you know this remains a absolutely important part of of who you are and and you know why you're doing this but you know it seems that what continues to drive you is just pushing boundaries in the water yeah, or, or, on, or on land or, yeah. you know, what, whatever it is. Um, water's just a nice uh, medium to work with because... It's softer it's, land. Yeah, it's softer land, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think, you know, where where all this goes, it's, it's interesting. Um, the technology that we develop for all these different things I work on, I'll go visit another friend's group that has a similar type of project with a like-minded person like me. And I'll go, oh, you should use this. This is how we solve this problem. And they're just like, oh, awesome. Yeah. You just changed the whole year's worth of work. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then likewise, they're like, so where'd you get that? Oh, yeah, you just buy that there. I'm like, oh, great. You know, it's that special yeah, it's that exchange, connector I right? need. And yeah. so yeah. having that group right. of projects at your disposal or or being able to contribute within all those groups you've got all these mentors and and whether or not it's uh that little thing that i'm working on over here that you're like well it's got nothing to do with you know renewable energy well it actually it does it's like everything that's in there in the they're using they're actually using at large scale on at makani oh electric motor there's a prop yeah there's the same cfd the same it's all the same, right? Yeah. It's just where, so the things you learn here, the suppliers that you end up using, the materials that you test at small scale, yeah. automatically can just go to large scale, right? And not it's automatically; an, they just sure. So it's creating an industry, right? It's also for suppliers and manufacturers, right. and, and just you know, how do you? So it's all crossover. Yeah. So yeah. maybe this this month I'm 
concentrating on that because I yeah. want the whole world to be able to fly yeah. on the magic carpet above the water. That's my mission right now to make everybody else have as much fun as I am. And then the next month it'll be, you know, working on something completely different. Yeah. That, yeah. That may be more on the energy sector. I really go where my skill set is needed. Yeah. If I'm not needed, then I'm not in your face. Well, and you're also, you're guided. You go where your passion guides yeah. you as well. Right. Great. Yeah. Every day you don't is one less day you can. And it's a lifestyle. It's not a job. There you go. It's just a lifestyle. Perfect. Thank you, man. Thanks. That was perfect. Great. All right. Maybe maybe you heard a slight echo there. Maybe it did feel like it was on the road, but I uh, hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. Thank you very much, Don Montague. That was an incredibly interesting, insightful conversation. Uh, check us out on iTunes. Uh, if you like us, help other people find us and leave a review. And uh, you can also head to redbulletin.com. It's an archive of the podcast, but it's also the, the home of some amazing stories in and of itself uh, on the video realm, in the words and pictures realm. That's all I got for this week. I'll see you next time.